0: Love Talk Radio.
1: Welcome. What's going on, everybody? It's yours truly, the Gap2 Guru of Gumbo, a.k.a. Brandon. Uh, Back in your ear once again, you are listening to the Gumbo Talk Show. We come here live every Thursday evening at 8 p.m. Central Standard Time. I look forward to having another great show. But I want to thank you in advance that anybody who is tuning in, listening, or is going to listen to this podcast, that uh, I want to tell you that I appreciate you. Uh, There could be so many other things that you could be doing at this point in time, but you chose to spend a little time with us here at the gumbo talk. And for that, I thank you. Um, There's a lot of things going on in the world, not only in the world, in our country, not only in our country, in our states and our local communities that require our attention. So this show being the gumbo talk, is not necessarily about food, but it's about getting the word out on a lot of different things that make up this amalgamation that we call the United States, that make up this great, big, vast pot of differences called the world, and it places us in a unique position in the universe to either be good to it or be bad and I hope that you side with the former over the latter. But tonight, once again, as we did last week, I want you all to welcome our guest last week. He's not new to the show. He's been on a couple times before, uh, Carlton Myers II, as we continue the conversation. And tonight's topic, um, to piggyback and add on to last week, is different, but it's keep applying pressure, and that's what we must do in a climate that we have right now where the harvest is ripe and the fruit is hanging low. We must keep applying pressure. Carlton, what's going on, brother? How you doing, Brandon? Thank you for having me on. I'm doing well. I'm doing well, man. I'm glad you're back on. Um, And, and, you know, we got real good feedback, positive feedback last week, and a lot of people were like, okay, we thought you were going to go a little longer. No, um, you you can't break off the whole loaf. Sometimes it dries off the throat. So, you know, we (laughs) broke this thing up, and uh, I look forward to continuing the conversation. Um, Last week, when we ended, we were really heavy on police reform and what that looks like in our communities. And we were, we were brainstorming, if you will, but we were really sharing um, some of the best practices to exact, correct police reform as we were um, exiting the show last week. And to pick up even at that point this week, I, I wanted to give you the floor to talk about The things that you think, and it's okay if we rehash some of the ones from last week, because everybody listening last week may not be listening this week, and there might be some new people, um, of what we were talking about when it relates to what does reform look like in your local police departments with regards to body cams and et cetera, et cetera.
0: Yeah, so uh, thank you very much once again for having me on. Yeah, I would love to continue our conversation from last week. I've been, uh, I'm sure, as as you have and others who are listening, uh, paying attention to the the news uh, since last week's uh, discussion. And really uh, just getting, having more thoughts on this idea of defunding police and what that means and just hearing from different advocates and lawmakers what their perspectives are. Like you hear, for instance, uh, those who are consider themselves to be abolitionists, who feel that defund police means exactly what it says, which is to abolish all law enforcement. And there's actually like a, an, an eight-step uh, uh, strategy that has been presented by an organization uh, that provides information on how to go about doing that uh, to essentially just phase out all law enforcement entirely. Then you also have this other perspective, which I think is what you're hearing from a lot of moderates, having to do with reallocation of funds. And so talking about the idea of divest from law enforcement and then reinvest those funds into education, youth services, reentry services, things that ultimately are going to prevent criminality. And so therefore uh, prevent the, uh, the uh, rate of interaction between community members and law enforcement. So you'll have like a less likelihood of negative encounters that's a, another idea. And and so there still hasn't been any clarity as to exactly what defund means. Like, you know, Trump and his people are, of course, going with the former of the two because uh, it's a lot easier to make a case against the Democrats in the elections, especially if you're claiming that they're trying to get rid of police. But what I think – I just want to talk about what my perspective is on the issue. What I think is that at the end of the day, when we're talking about defunding police – Regardless of uh, abolition, regardless of reinvestment and divestment, I think what it really comes down to is ending policing as, as a mechanism of racism and to, by ending it, to um, rebalance the power that exists between community and the government that governs the community. And it, it's all about that power disparity, which is happening and has been happening for quite some time especially toward vulnerable populations like black and uh, brown populations in particular and even like when it comes to women and the way that lgbtq are treated by the government and in turn a reflection of that is through law enforcement which is the enforcement arm of the government so at the end of the day when we're talking about defund police what we're really talking about is how can we re-empower or empower i should really say community because it's all about power at the end of the day and i think that in my opinion that's why we have all of these protests that have been going on all around the country for over a week now i think over two weeks at this point and and not only in america i think globally as well we're hearing about stuff happening in the uk and other parts of the world where they're also like bringing down statues of uh people that were uh well-known slave owners or Uh, Even in America, uh, people who are of the Confederacy or supported them or supported those kind of white supremacist views. They're just like bringing down statues. They're changing uh, the names of forts uh, in the uh, the army that are uh, the names of uh, generals in in the uh, Confederacy. They're removing those names and changing them to names that have no affiliation with the Confederacy at all. You know, even NASCAR, very surprisingly— has uh, now implemented a a, um, a a rule that anybody attending the NASCAR uh, events, you know, the they cannot, you know, wave the Confederate flag. It cannot be displayed, yeah. which is huge, I think, for their population, like who, you know, the people that tend to be, that go to NASCAR events, I think that's going right. to be a major impact on them. So I, I just feel that at the end of the day, it is about ending like this form of racism or this, mechanism of racism being policing, but at least the way that policing has been conducted in America over generations now, ending that, but it's also about rebalancing this power dynamic between community and government. And so I think that if we focus on that and try to find solutions from that standpoint in regards to how can we empower community members, how can we shift the balance in power? So it's more evened out. Focus more on that rather than, well, we're talking about taking money away from law enforcement or we're talking about abolishing them or we're talking about investing. I think those are all important conversations. But I also feel as if um, any kind of like there'll be legislation, there'll be initiatives that will be put forward that will literally just be a Band-Aid on on the actual problem. It won't address the underlying issue, the underlying issue being disempowerment. So um, I did want to talk just a bit, you know, just wanted to kind of connect it to last week's conversation in regards to what I said um, and having to do with community empowerment and what that means, what that looks like, because I I, I, I just feel that if there's clarity on that issue, then it will be a lot easier to start thinking of sustainable workable solutions that can be implemented as of like tomorrow, as of now, Uh, with the right kind of political will and also with the right kind of people power at the end of the day. But it really is all about shifting the balance of power from those who typically don't have it, the vulnerable communities, uh, taking it, you know, giving it to them from those who typically do have it, being the government. So, um, yeah, no, I definitely would love to talk about that today. Yeah,
1: so let's, um, let's start to unwrap this package. A little bit Thank you for those of y'all who have tuned in Let's see if we got anybody on the line I know we have people Yeah, thank you for those of you who called in And those of you listening on Facebook So unpackaging this The idea that dismantle over defund Is a notion To me is an extreme I, I have never been good on extremes because if you lose, you lose it all. So it's a big risk. But if you strategize and there are remnants that even if the entire um, ideology misses, there are still some things that will catch. And so in the grand scale of things, we know we need to figure out how interactions between two individuals on a roadway, in a parking lot, wherever they may be, and one of the individuals. Here's the thing. Here's the thing with this before I even say this about the encounter. Um the question came to me when I was training officers for the mental health officer um, certification. The question is, when an officer shows up on a scene, whether it's a call, a stop, or whatever, what percentage? Of the time does someone have a weapon? I did not know the answer at first, and then I had to sit back and think for a second. What percentage of the time, when a police officer is called to a scene or witnesses the potentiality of a crime or is investigating, does someone? Have a weapon That is a deadly weapon I Think I was like maybe 10% Maybe 25 Maybe half the time But then I realized That the answer is 100% Of the time Because the officers have a weapon 100% of the time And that weapon Now we know Isn't always used Because they're using tasers At extreme uh, measures that are, are, are putting people in comas and killing folks And they're also using these chokeholds But those are still also tools that are weapons Supposed to be for defense But as we've seen as of late Even more so um, as an exacting justice on the street By people who are not sanctioned to do so So knowing that 100% of the time a weapon is on the scene People need to be looking at what happens when officers are on the scene. Body cams were supposed to be a solution to this. But as we know, there's been instances where supposedly the body cams don't work and or they weren't turned on or turned off. So the, the the thing becomes what is a policy that provides for not only When things should happen But what are The real results As far as Punishment When a particular party Who's supposed to enforce what we know As the constitution Fails to do so on their part What is The Repercussions Or what are the repercussions For an officer Of the law Who has taken an oath If they don't do What we think morally Should be done And unfortunately It used to be He said she said Or he said he said And 99% of the time The judge Or the investigating Staff Whoever they may be Would side with the officer with cameras in everybody's hands we now have proof but even with cameras there's some i guess suspectability that everything wasn't caught on camera so on so forth so what you see for eight minutes and 46 seconds doesn't tell the whole story uh, before that before this cop ever even got on the scene this guy used drugs in 1989 in 1991 he smoked weed in, in the bathroom in high school. And in 1999, he caught a drug charge. In 2004, he got a domestic violence. Whatever it is, you know, that's the, that's the standard quote case. But, but we victimized the victim in that. But back to, the, back to the, the primary root of this, what I'm talking about. What do we do when there's two people on the side of the road or wherever, what have you, and one of them gets the benefit of the doubt, and the other one is doubtful if they ever get a benefit, what do we do? We have policy. So, Carlton, let's, let's, let's go into this and talk about, okay, you know, we've got all these options. We've got the, got the dismantle people. I think they're on the extreme. I mean, it could happen, but uh, highly unlikely with most of these municipalities anywhere from um, almost 100% For a small municipality um, To Probably 20 or 25 percent Probably at the lowest The budget of the entire municipality Is for law enforcement I mean that's the big Chunk of Municipalities, cities If you will, townships Budget is law enforcement And, And so what do you think Are some Things that would Help out a majority of us as as black folks in our communities that would protect us from the fallibility of the benefit of the doubt or the doubt that we'll get a benefit. So what I can tell you is uh,
0: based on my experience as an attorney working um, on policing reform in high profile areas, for instance, a good example is Ferguson, Missouri. I had done some work out there after uh, my, uh, hit the incident with his uh, death, and I was working with the community members uh, out of Ward 3, which is where he and his family are from, on mm-hmm. making sure that the community had a voice during the consent decree process because typically a consent decree it's a court-enforceable agreement that uh, is like a contract that you have with your plumber. You tell your plumber, okay, I'm going to sign this agreement with you that you'll – you know, fix my plumbing, and then after you fix it, I'll pay you so-and-so amount of money. That's the agreement. You know, they come through, they fix your plumbing, you pay them, you're good to go. That's how the consent decree is. It's just that it's a court-enforceable agreement, so there's a judge who's over it. Uh, there's also an independent monitor, somebody that's brought in that's not of either party involved in the uh, in, in the lawsuit settlement agreement, and they just kind of come in and make sure that all the parties in the agreement are doing what they're supposed to, according to the the contract. In this case, the parties are, uh, in Ferguson's case, the U.S. Department of Justice and the city of Ferguson. And the community members were not a part of that. You know, they're they're not represented by the city of Ferguson. They're supposed to be by the U.S. Department of Justice, but the people of the U.S. DOJ, they don't live there, so they're not of that community. So I did a lot of work when I was uh, an attorney at Legal Defense Fund on on establishing and creating mechanisms through the court uh, for community members to be able to have a voice to say, to provide their perspective on what they think the status of the consent decree and the fulfillment of its provisions were at uh, for the Ferguson Police Department. And I can tell you something right now, a lot of the work I did had to do with making sure they had a voice, making sure that they understood the process, they understood who was responsible for what needed to happen in the process, and then trying to strategize where was the best fit for them to be able to be heard uh, and to have the biggest impact with their words. And I, 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 you know, I've been watching, you know, what's been happening in Ferguson since I know that last week um, their first female African-American mayor was elected uh, in the city of Ferguson. And I believe now they also have members, African-American members on their city council in addition to the first black female mayor. So things have changed a lot. And I've been in touch with, community members out there who are of the vulnerable population and they definitely feel that now their law enforcement is more reflective of the community by race uh, even by gender and that uh, there's better interaction between law enforcement and the community there's still more work to be done the consent decree is not done yet but they are definitely a long ways away from where they were when they first started and the reason why i'm bringing up the story is because the crux of the story is that the reason why things are getting better is because what's happening in Ferguson is now there's more community involvement, more, and therefore more community empowerment throughout the policing process. And that to me is the solution to, you know, what you just brought up with the scenario that you just laid out. You know, if if we, if we think about this from like a policy standpoint, right, let's think about body worn cameras, for instance, what I'm talking about is like I said, community empowerment, involves three things it involves community involvement that means not being a token no tokenization that means you're actually involved in the process so when we're talking about body worn camera uh policy that means that you are involved the community through like a town hall there's several town hall meetings with law enforcement to sit down and have this body worn camera policy either explained to you and then you can make modifications to it or to work with community members to brainstorm A body worn camera policy, like actually everybody come up with it together instead of law enforcement being the first ones to take a stab at it and then asking the community to to amend whatever they're uh, 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 demonstrating to them, whatever they're laying out. Uh, So we're talking about that level of involvement. And then the other thing you need, so community involvement is one for community empowerment. The other thing you need is knowledge. The community actually needs knowledge of what's going on with different aspects of policing. You know. We hear about this when we, you know, people talk about transparency and the need for it. In my opinion, when I'm saying knowledge, it goes even beyond transparency. It, it goes into um, like the scenario of, a, of community members being involved in a town hall around policy. They should have knowledge on the history, if there is any, involving the development or the, uh, the creation of the body-worn camera policy. They should uh, have knowledge of any kind of conversations or meetings that leadership and government have had around that policy, it should not just be laid out to them like, okay, this is what we have. We're not going to give you any background on it. We just want you to modify it. Because that is a form of controlling others and not giving them power by uh, holding on to knowledge, right? We always say knowledge is power. So it's important to provide that knowledge and be above board. So when we're talking about community empowerment, like I said, you have involvement, not tokenization, you have knowledge, that means background information, like you actually understand the full picture, and there's proactive efforts to do that. And the last piece that you need for community empowerment is decision-making power. This means that community members, when it comes to the body-wearing camera policy, actually have decision-making power on if, this, on if this is going to be the final version of the policy. This is going to be what's going to be instituted and what law enforcement officers in this police department are expected to adhere to and if they don't adhere to it they violate it then there will be disciplinary actions against them uh and so to actually have that decision-making power that is significant it's not something where you only have one vote out of 10 votes uh communities should have at least 50 percent of the vote in my opinion because any 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 kind of policy that's going to be instituted is going to have a direct impact on those community members they have to live with that they have to live in those communities. And so it's very important that they have that level of decision-making power. So like all three of those elements, community involvement, community knowledge, and community decision-making power, all of that ultimately leads to community empowerment. And, in, and what, I'm saying, what I'm trying to say is that any effort, any legislation, any laws, any initiatives going forward need to have those elements within it in order for it to be effective and long-standing.
1: Right, and so with that, although Carlton mentioned the body-worn cameras, you can you can you can interchangeably apply this to the use of force, as far as um, chokeholds, um, tasers, um, batons, other items, these rubber bullet guns all these things are in policy in law enforcement police departments but do you know what they are for your community these are the things that um that, for instance there's a meeting going on tonight and I wasn't going to take part in it here locally and they were dis- they're going to discuss these things well before the meeting I had four phone calls from people who were going to the meeting knowing I wasn't going they know I wasn't going but they asked me what my advice was on what they think that they should be doing. I said, no, you need to do your own research. The day for Brandon Johnson to provide you with stuff that's laying right there on the table is, is over for me here locally because I'm getting exhausted telling people things that they could easily Google and or the policy for the police department is on their website. A little word search, you'll find everything that deals with chokeholds. A little word search, trust me, I did it already, so I know that they can do it. And and there's an empowerment in that. When a person isn't going to one source to get their knowledge, they're going to read it for themselves so that you can see if I missed out a verb or or, or some kind of wording. That I, go see for yourself. The interchangeable um, issues that um People have can be Input in what Carlton Was just explaining You've got your overall branch Your your overall canopy And then in that you have branches And then in that you have You know large limbs And then you have the trunk and the root Well you've got to, you've got to Look at what you see But know that it goes Deeper and then if you Follow the line You'll see where Issues begin to happen. Anyone can do this. This is something that can happen in any community that the people who are listening to this, whether now or in archive, can do. And and you ask yourself often, who is the leader? Um, you, you're the leader. Um, when is Mar? I get this at least once a week. Are we going to ever have another Martin Luther King? What about you? Okay. Remember, 90% of the people that were in the communities where Martin Luther King went through did not like him. Black folks. They thought mm. he brought too much pressure. They brought he thought he brought too much heat to their area. We a lot of places didn't want him to come. So you you're the one. If you're asking that question, the answer is you. So If you just get a little bit of knowledge And you start asking people Not only the people that are in power You probably want to ask them last But ask other people that you know Might have similar thoughts and ideology as you Next thing you know You'll have a coalition of people And when you have a coalition of people The more and more you have The more and more the people in government The people in power will listen Because they realize that these are not only individuals But they look at them as votes They look at a lot of us as numbers and if the numbers say that nobody really cares about an issue and nobody ever voices it, it won't, the squeaky wheel won't, won't get the oil unless somebody says, well, it's us squeak Because nine times of ten, the, these people in power are far removed from what's going on. I was even talking the other day to a friend, and I said, well, um, you're giving this person that sits at 1,600 the benefit of the doubt about how what people think this is a friend now so they were, were both on the same side of what we think about 1600 right now but he, we we basically I said, do you think that this person knows what a gallon of milk costs. This was after the remark about George uh, Floyd would be happy about the jobs numbers, and we were like, hmm. damn, could you be any further removed from reality. Do you think George gave a damn about, I knew Big Floyd way back you know, 25 to 25, no 20, yeah 22 years ago. Um, mm. So I, 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 don't, I don't know, I, mean, I, I, if he's inside, I don't care about them jobs numbers. If they don't impact me or I'm not working in that capacity and I'm working I don't care about the unemployment numbers. Right? If I had my job for 20 years I'm not looking at employment numbers. Sorry. Right. So People don't care about that, and people who, are, who are, are, are working stiffs that have trouble getting a job, they don't care about uh, unemployment numbers either. But the point of it is, is that people in in mayors and some city council, some county administrators and commissioners and whatever aldermen, whatever you call them, a lot of them are people who are well off because they don't have to go to work, they can kind of manage another gig that they don't get paid that much, but they get the power. They don't know what's going on on the street. I know that there's not one, there might be one, might be one city council person in, in out of the six, and then the seven, including the mayor, that knows what's actually going on in the streets of this city. One. That's in just my town. I don't know how many in your towns or your communities But they don't know. So what they get is usually information off the news like every other Joe Blow gets. And the news is often different than what's actually going on in the street because the perspective is from a journalist's perspective. It's not from a person actually living it, typically. So you have to live out your life in stages, I mean on stages, because Otherwise, people won't know what you went through. I was right before we got on this call, Carlton and I were talking, I was telling him I I had two other conference calls before the show. And um, the one before this was about health and the state of Texas, about how we're going to help out black folks in the state of Texas dealing with coronavirus. And Carlton didn't even know. I told him, I said, you know, I had the coronavirus. He said, what? Mm -hmm. I said, yeah, I had it a month ago. I mean, you know, I'm still recuperating. I've recovered, but I'm still recuperating. From how it did my lungs and my body I can feel The differences right And and, and I'm not the same as I was two months ago um, And they don't know How long it's going to take for me to get back to 100 But the point of it is is You have all these lived experiences Right and and you have All these people around you that have this, this Need for the knowledge that you have That you've learned that you've read that you've studied About the only way they're going to know About it is if you tell them we, can't, we, don't, we don't have the ability at this point in the, the world, this point of where our world is, to keep our mouths shut on issues that matter. We don't want it. It might be something that you think is so minor, like nobody else has, has dealt with this at this grocery store, just me. But then you start telling people that you know go to that grocery store about your situation and come to find out maybe the manager at this grocery store is prejudice or racist, and then what do you do? Well, that you, get, you
0: and, know, and, and, you have and, to. And have I really some... do think. Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Go no, on, go I was ahead. just gonna say, I really do think that the knowledge piece is, is key, and that's why I offer the trainings that I offer to community groups. I know I talked about it last week, um, but I mean, you know, there's the 21st Century Community Action Card Deck that. I developed with the Obama administration back in 2016, and the whole point of those cards are to educate community members on the recommendations within the report for policing reform for their specific communities. And so those cards are solution-based. They help community members to identify solutions that they want to see and to also strategize and implement them. I mean, it's all like on 30 cards, 30 solutions. And, uh, and literally, it, it, uh, you know, there's a training that I do for Train the Trainers where I work with community leaders anywhere from 10 to 20 at a time. And I help them on using the cards to put on their own strategy sessions for their community groups. And then I also do strategy sessions myself with just the larger community. So that way, you know, I am engaging and educating community members about their community by having them work with the cards, because as you answer the questions on the back of the cards, uh, they help you to strategize and to do the research. And as you're strategizing and doing the research, you're learning about these different laws, regulations, initiatives uh, that are going on in your community around policing reform. And so, you know, you're not only strategizing, but, but you're also learning. Like, just going back to what you said about people not even knowing this, you know, I mean, that's the whole point of the training that I do is to help them learn on their own about policing in their community. And so, uh, no, I mean, it's very key. And I mean, at the end of the day, like I said, knowledge is power. Uh, Another point I was going to bring up is that um, going back to the defund conversation, it's just interesting Mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, reformist people that are considered reformists, you know, talk about reallocating some of the funds from law enforcement and then uh, having those allocate, uh, the, those funds be reallocated over toward community resources like reentry, gun violence prevention, victim service assistance, you know, all of this stuff is very important and very key. But, uh, what, what's interesting, though, is when we're talking about empowering community, um, that in itself is a form of empowerment. But, uh, you know, when we also hear from those who say we should abolish all law enforcement, I've heard from a lot of uh, people I've worked with in the past in different black communities around the country back when I was running NAACP Nationals Criminal Justice Reform Program. A lot of those individuals have reached out to me and have said to me, you know, uh, I don't want uh, 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 my law enforcement to be abolished because I feel that I would be disempowered not having law enforcement to address you know, like murders that happen in my community, like really severe crimes. And it's just interesting when we're talking about this idea of empowerment to understand that getting rid of law enforcement might not be empowerment. Some people say that it would be, but that for some, for some people, that might be considered disempowerment. And so that's why what I'm trying to say is that at the end of the day, there is no one-size-fits-all approach to policing reform. It really is something that has to be done on the state and local level. I mean, nationally, yes, there are things that can be done like establishing a legal standard for use of force that actually uh, would make it eligible for more crimes to fall under it uh, and, would, and would not make it so difficult to convict officers who were guilty of committing right. misconduct. That is definitely, that needs to happen. You know, having like, and I mentioned this in the last uh, talk, we had a national uh, uh, decertification index in NDI that is funded by the U.S. government and is fully operational, you know, so that way we know what officers have been decertified because they've engaged in misconduct, so they don't go to another police department. Like, things like that can get done on the national level. But beyond that, which, you know, when we're talking about what you and I are talking about right now, we're talking about getting into the the nitty-gritty, you know, aspects of policing reform. That really needs to be done on the state and local level. And that's why... You really need to, you know, like advocates, activists, you know, need to uh, work with community members and talk to them. You know, don't, you know, and all will say with the government. Don't tell them what, what solutions are. Like find out from them, do a brainstorming session and find out what they right. think the problems are and what the solutions are. And for them, it might be hiring more police. You know, there might be some black communities that might say, well, no, we want more police. You know, we think that might be, you know, what's going to solve it. And other ones are going to say, no, we don't want any more police. We want fewer. We want to cut back. You know, we think that that's what's going to be, you know, more empowering for us. And so I just want to make sure to be clear that with this whole defund movement, however people want to interpret it, at the end of the day, it's about empowerment. And that can only be interpreted by the community, by those who are going to be most directly impacted by policing. And that's that varies. And so that's why, you know, I really, you know, uh, like with my company, Mayor Strategic Solutions, this training I do with the 21st Century Community Action Card Deck really helps community members to custom tailor it for their own particular community. It's not a one-size-fits-all approach. And so I just want to really stress that because that's so important when we're talking about solutions for policing.
1: Yeah. And so the the notion – that I'm just going to sit passively by, and this will too blow over, we'll get back to normal, um, I'm just not going to say anything, um, that day has already been far removed. Um, if you don't say anything, then more than likely the thing that you don't want to see happen will happen because there's going to be people who always voice an op opinion about what it is that you probably are pro for. So if you let other people, especially people that you disagree with, continue to shape your community, then you're kind of asking for what's going to happen. I always tell this story. I'm going to leave out the names in this one, but some of you will figure it out. I always tell this story about. I remember <clears throat> my 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 leader um, in an organization that I was a part of, volunteer organization, um, had asked me to oversee a region. And I said I don't know. So I said, okay, I'll do it because I know most people out there, and the most people out here, um, they like me, and and we get along already. They already look to me for advice on certain things, even though I'm not the most apt at figuring out everything. I know who knows an answer if I don't have it, right? And so I remember we all went and talked to this one particular guy, and the guy just really told us, hey, man, we don't have those issues here. That, that's, not a, that's not a problem in our community. Um, that's only going to cause problems. It wasn't thirty days, y'all. His son wound up murdered, but the law enforcement that investigated the murder said it was suicide. Um, It was it was strange because none of us really went to this funeral because we felt like. You know, it wasn't our, our role to be there. We weren't really welcome. And what we had was some solutions to this problem. And nobody knows 100% what happened to, to, to his son, um, but the people who did it. But it's kind of funny, the people who investigated the, the murder were, were college buddies and roommates. With the people who were the key suspects, and because of their position, what was written down was taken, and nothing was really said about it. That is an extreme, but that is one of the scenarios of the many I know of personally that happens to people, and and it's not until they used to use this term, um, Carlton. In social services, they used to use the term. It's called NIMBY. NIMBY, not in my backyard, right? When it's not mm. going on in your backyard, you don't pay attention. Then, if it's going on somewhere else, you say, "Well, it's not going on here," and you still don't pay attention. These are the days where you can realize that something that happens in Sanford, New York, Indianapolis, where was it at in Ohio? Where was Tamir Rice? Cleveland? Cincinnati. Cleveland. Not mm-hmm. Cleveland. No, Cleveland. Uh, Ferguson, uh Chicago. I can keep going on to LA. The things that happened there can happen here One of the things I'm going to, I'm going to mention And I'm going to go, we go back to Carlton And keep on this point One of the people that One of the four people that called me They said Well We, we could talk about um, The stuff that's going on With, with George Floyd and, and with all these other instances uh, But but it's not It, it doesn't happen here and I, and I had to stop her I said What the hell did you just say I said You don't remember When the boy on my street Four blocks down got shot six times by one officer standing next to two other officers that never drew their weapon, right? He got shot six times, sent a mask. The boy survived, was out of the hospital in two days, right? But he got shot six times. And then after he got shot, they found this BB gun on him. But what it was is he walked around the corner and spooked these guys, that we're finna do something to somebody else And he spooked him And the guy shot him six times And I said Don't forget about Kalen Rockmore He's from here In fact, uh, Carlton On the cover of the Time magazine They've got uh, the, 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 the latest issue They've got names around the border And Kalen Rockmore Who I've been friends with his mom for years From here is on that cover Thank God he's getting national recognition. But he died at the hands of a state trooper just a few miles, 20 miles down the road. Shot in <clears> back <throat> after a traffic stop. Kalen Rockmore. And I said, you, you people weren't even, they don't even care. They just wrote it off because of how it was written up in the media. You didn't, you didn't, but you care about all these other issues. You've got to be paying attention to what's going on at home because the likelihood of a David whatever his name chauvin uh choking you is very limited nominal but Bobby Jefferson, who's a cop in on on your beat in your community, he will do that to you and mm-hmm. if you don't get him in check there's no need in you protesting for 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 what's going on in in Minneapolis with 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 not only George Floyd but Philando Castillo you 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 can you can do all that you want, but if you're not working on local and state you're really you're really just becoming part of the problem you you're You're a whole lot of smoke and no fire, a whole lot of smoke and no fire, so we've got to learn that where there's smoke, there ought to be fire and we ought to put that energy to use because we have it, you have the knowledge, or you have access to the knowledge, and all you have to do is put that in place. Okay, Carlton, what's, what's, what's on your mind next? Uh, so I, well, I was going to say I really want to um,
0: uh, give kudos to uh, certain uh, mayors, in particular mm-hmm. Mayor Lightfoot here in Chicago where I'm at, uh, because oh, yeah. she's really been pushing – a policing reform agenda that would include community members being involved in the training of chicago police department officers and so being involved in like implicit bias training use of force training de-escalation which would be a part of the use of force training um uh trauma-informed care training and having this be scenario based meaning that everything you just talked about, like that scenario that you just laid out, that's something that members of the community and law enforcement can act out. And then after acting it out in front of everybody, then have an open discussion where law enforcement can give their interpretation of the scenario and why they believe that their actions or the way they communicate is the best approach. And then community members Mm -hmm. can give their feedback and say, well, actually we don't think that's the best approach. And this is why, And we think instead that you should do it this way or don't do it at all. And that way, at least having the conversation and allowing for that, if anything, debate or agreement or ultimately agreement on how to go forward with how law enforcement will engage with those particular community members who they are there to protect and serve. That is literally their job. That's what they get paid to do. And so it only makes sense that if you're getting paid by them. Then you should probably listen to them Every now and then Well not every now and then But just like have events That happen on a regular basis If it be a town hall meeting If it be trainings, There are a lot of different ways That community members And law enforcement can engage each other And actually talk through Processes, practices, and policies And that's how you're going to change the culture Because right now That is not the case With community members and law enforcement Uh, The case right now is that law enforcement literally dictates the way things are going to be uh, done and set and the community members just have to stand by and just take it and there there's no real power in being a part of the community compared to law enforcement and that needs to change i think that's why we're having all this unrest because people are fed up and it's not only people of color white people are too because they also experience that to some extent from from law enforcement i mean you know uh it's, it's not only i mean black people and people of color in general, we get it a lot worse. But, I mean, at the end of the day, like, when you look at the way that law enforcement across the country treated a number of these uh, protesters, you know, not people that were looting, but people that were peacefully protesting their First Amendment rights, and you're seeing that white people, and you're seeing the way that law enforcement's pushing them, beating them up, like that old white gentleman, 70-year-old guy in Buffalo, New York, who got pushed right. to the ground hit his head and was bleeding. I mean, he wasn't a person of color. And and those officers were not either, and that's how they treated him. I'm just saying that, you know, in general, the way that law enforcement engages, it's very much so, it comes from like a warrior style, a warrior approach to policing, and not a guardian one, not one where they're looking at, how can we protect you even from us to make sure that we are adhering to human rights standards that other countries have to adhere to, that we expect other countries to adhere to. Right. So um, it really comes down to that power dynamic. And I'm very happy to see a mayor like Mayor Lightfoot, who's pushing forward that kind of agenda to include community members and scenario based training with law enforcement, that's going to be a good way at least a good start to getting the conversation going, getting the knowledge, getting the involvement and ultimately getting the decision making authority, right? Getting to that point, that's going to be true community empowerment and so I'm happy about that I was gonna say I would love to see that uh, adapted or transition or not transition but adapted to uh, police union contract negotiations like I would love to see either I know that the Minneapolis police chief has come out yesterday said that he's withdrawing from uh, participating in the negotiations with the union over the police union contract in Minneapolis And uh, which I think is very powerful that he's doing that. But I, I think it would be even more powerful if there could be ways that city government, that state government can carve out a major, a significant role, not just a role, but a significant role that community members within those communities, especially those who are directly impacted by law enforcement in negative ways, that they have a space in those negotiations where they can be heard, where they can provide Uh, their own provisions that they want to see in there or amendments to provisions within that contract. So that way they, that community also has a a decision-making authority and empowerment over that process, because that at the end of the day is what really upends a lot of reforms, even that police chiefs want to implement and mayors is the police union contract. They have all these protections in there for law enforcement, even when they engage in misconduct. I mean, it's unnecessary. And it really prevents true accountability, which prevents uh, law enforcement from having an untarnished reputation because you're not able to hold those accountable who are engaging in misconduct. So if community had more um, of a role in that, that would be key. And I'll I'll be honest with you, I'm currently working with communities around the country on um, how they can have a role in that process. There's uh, uh, ways to do that. And I do offer that as well through uh, my consulting
1: Mm -hmm. services. The um the other one is Keisha Bottom. You don't forget about her in um uh, in Atlanta. Um doing a lot of good work. I <clears throat> I didn't see where she's fired four officers uh for misconduct during the protest there. Um I, I just wish that, you know, the firing of white officers was as hasty as it was for these four black officers in Atlanta. Then they rightfully need to lose their job. They did some foul stuff. But again, um, I think that it disrupts what the real big picture is when you see those four officers in Atlanta, which is a predominantly black city, so you know it's got to have um, a lot of black officers on its force, but it's by no means a representation of the entire country. So it's, it's just... The things with repercussions and punishment for officers when they do wrong, it's got to be clear and precise, and it's got to be swift. Um, And like you said, these unions, these police unions, not unions altogether, but these police unions um, have a tendency to, get in the way, and they have so much power um, because every all the officers pay into it, even if they don't get the benefits from it, it's there and it writes pretty much the policy between the city and the officer and gives them more power uh, than the officer and the city at some, time, at some point. They're actually the ones that certify whether or not the police chief's firing of an officer is acceptable. Otherwise, they'll put money. And they got big money um, across the board, y'all. You can't sleep on these police unions. Big money. And, And quite often, they've got the money to bail officers out of jail within hours of them being charged and formally arraigned. So you've got to know that there's big money. But here's the thing about big money and this big power is that the power has always been in the people. There's way more people than them. And then even though they've got big money, if you have a whole lot of people with a little bit of money. It's still more than what they have. So, again, just like I used that adage in the grocery store, an issue and then you find out other people have had that problem next thing you know you have a coalition next thing you know you have a an association and the next thing you know you have a conglomerate that's speaking on behalf of a particular issue and y'all it's no it's the hey look there is no limit here you don't have to work on everything but if you're really knowledgeable in one area, let that become your expertise. Let somebody else handle something that you don't really even care about. I used to have this argument with people when I was organized and really strong, and they always came to me, Hey, uh, Brandon, mister Brandon, Mr. Johnson, I wish that you I wish that this would be something. You know, this is and they would they would run down all this information. And I'd tell them flat, out, I said, Look, that's not my pastor. So I'm not going to do it. Oh, you're not going to do it? That's an issue that affects black folks. I said, yes, it does. You got somebody in your family's mind? I said, yes, I do. I said but it's not my pastor. I said I tell you what. What I will do is we'll talk and we'll sit down and have a conversation about you leading it and about me supporting you with helping you get money and or other people to find out other people who have that issue. It's, like I said earlier It's going to start with you If you're looking for the leader The leader is in you And if it's not in you Then you're going to have to be one of them Aaron type of people And hold up the mat, hold up the staff For Moses Because you're passionate about this You need to find who else is And if you're not going to lead it You're going to have to support that leader You know, Don't be bickering about Little stuff of this there And titles and who's going to do this and that Y'all just come together. Y'all know you have, uh, we all have um, an issue at hand right now that needs to be addressed. Work on the issues. Don't work on personalities. Work on the issues. Because trust me, somebody you hate today, might you might find out you love tomorrow. And vice versa. Somebody you thought you were friends with, you've come to learn that their ideology is wrong. I, I was talking to a friend today, they were talking about a, a friend they knew, a lady they knew, and um, how much over the years, over 20, 30 years, they've been cool. And and this lady is that. And then all of a sudden, this lady is a white lady, comes out and says that I don't believe in the Black Lives Matter and boom, boom, boom. And and the friend of mine was telling me that that this other girl that knew that this white woman was dating all these black men, even when she was married to a white man, and, and, and helped all these black men out. It's like you wasn't you not against Black Lives when you was dating. Boom, 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 and and boom, 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 boom. People are going to be your friends today, and the enemies are mine. All we have to do is work on these issues, get our personalities out of the way. Um, Carlton, before we get out of here, this show's going to stop, and we're not going to we're not going to go any further than an hour. If you have any uh, last remarks, about thirty seconds, go for it. Well, thank you once again for having me on. I just want
0: to say that um, uh, I'm all about community empowerment, where I work with communities across the country on empowering them by uh, working with them to give them the knowledge, consulting with them on uh, policing reform on the local and state level in particular. And uh, if you are interested in being in touch with me uh, to either, you know, have me consult with you directly on uh, certain initiatives or to do the 21st Century Community Action Card Deck, training uh, for a train-the-trainer and or a strategy session with the larger community, please reach out to me. It's Mayors Strategic Solutions, LLC. And the email address is C-T-M, like Mary, A-Y-E-R-S, the number two, at gmail.com. So it's C-T-Mayors2 at gmail.com. Uh, thank you very much. You can also look me up on Facebook. Just look up Mayors Strategic Solutions, and it will come up. I have my Facebook page up there. You could also be in touch with me that way. But thank you very much, and I hope everybody stays healthy and empowered. Right on.
1: Thank you, Carlton. Appreciate you for being on this evening um, with us for another um, episode.